Good evening. I think I know everyone here, but if I haven't met you, my name is Nathan, and I'm a member here. I'm excited to speak to you tonight. Tonight we're beginning a new series from Exodus chapter 20, so you can go ahead and turn there as we prepare to read it in a few minutes. Uh, this series is on the Ten Commandments, so uh, most of you are probably familiar with the Ten Commandments in some way. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably uh, saw them even if you didn't grow up in church somewhere in a piece of art, uh, in a movie, or even on the steps of a courthouse. Uh, so before we read the passage, it's good to have a little bit of background of what these familiar commandments come from. So prior to this chapter in the book of Exodus, the book has recounted the story of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt through his servant Moses. So we've seen Moses' birth, his protection, his call. We've seen the 10 plagues over Egypt. We've seen the delivery of the people across the Red Sea through the parting of the sea. And now the people are in the wilderness of Sinai and God is entering into a new covenant relationship with them. So we'll begin in Exodus chapter 20. Tonight's text is verses one through three. Uh, please stand as we read God's word. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. You can be seated. So in this text, we'll see two principles for worship of God. First, that worship of God is warranted. And second, that worship of God is exclusive. Worship of God is warranted, and worship of God is exclusive. Let's look first at how it's warranted. God begins his introduction to the people of Israel with an identification of who he is and what he's done. First, who he is the Lord their God, the God who made a covenant with Abraham that extended to his descendants who are now gathered around the base of a mountain hearing his voice. Now, if you're like me, you've heard the story of Moses surrounding these Ten Commandments many times, and you may have a mental image in your mind of Moses with his beard flowing in the wind, coming down the mountain, these two big tablets, five commandments on each, ready to bring God's word to his people. Something like the final shot of the Prince of Egypt. While it's a beautiful image, it's not what we see in our text tonight. These tablets that we're so familiar with come later in the book of Exodus. So it's important to set the stage tonight. Here God has called Moses and Aaron up the mountain and gathered all the people at the bottom. And the words that he speaks are spoken directly, audibly to all of his people. These words are also accompanied by signs that provide verification of his identity. We've seen in the previous chapter, Exodus 19, that the people of Israel saw supernatural power descend on the mountain in fire, smoke, and cloud. God's revelation of himself to Israel here is similar to his revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. These images of fire show his power, and there can be no mistake about who is speaking. I am the Lord your God. Now, before giving his first command, God cites his works, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Everything that has happened, the whole story of Exodus up to this verse, lends credence to what he's about to say. The people of Israel should listen and obey, 
both because of who God is and because of what he's done. They are not to follow these commands that he's about to lay out in hope that in return, God will deliver them from slavery in Egypt. They follow these commands because he already has. These commands and the covenant of God, and thus our obedience to him, are predicated on his identity and his works. To say it another way, deliverance and salvation precede obedience. This is reflected strikingly in the New Testament in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, where he makes clear that the freedom of Christians from sin is a catalyst for righteous living before God. In Romans 6.18, he writes, Having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt typified our need to be delivered from slavery to sin, which God brought about through Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection. Thus, we see that worship of God through obedience is motivated not by hope for earning salvation, but by the hope in the salvation and deliverance that he has already brought through the mighty works of God. This is why we obey his commands as believers. Brothers and sisters, as we consider obedience to God's commands, as we study these commands in our series, it's good and necessary for us to first remind ourselves and each other of who he is, the Lord our God, who has delivered us from slavery to sin and its penalty. When you think about obedience to God, is his saving work one of the first things that comes to mind? We want our obedience to be fueled by love. As Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. This love comes from an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and it is cultivated as we first dwell on his deliverance. No one else is the Lord, and no one else could deliver us from judgment. Let's look back at the text now to see what this obedience looks like. In verse 2, we saw that worship of God is warranted. And in verse 3, we see that worship of God is exclusive. Do not have other gods besides me. Now, this seems pretty straightforward, and that's because it is. God is God alone, and there can be no others. This first of the ten words that God gives to his people is mirrored and expanded on in what Jesus cites as the great commandment from Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This verse gives us some insight into why other gods are forbidden. It's not as though there's a list, a ranking of gods, and God wants to make sure his name stays at the top. Though it is easy for many of us to live this way. As long as God is most important in our lives, we think we can have other things that call for our heart, soul, and strength as well. Perhaps we think that our worship is like a tithe or first fruits. If we give God the best or the first of our worship and make sure that he gets his on Sunday or throughout the week, we can do what we want with the rest, giving it to celebrities, public leaders, entertainers, or sports teams, to our careers, our spouses, our children, or our friends, to our favorite writers, thinkers, or theologians. But no, he makes it abundantly clear in this first commandment. Proper worship of God leaves no room for worship of anything else. Worship of God requires everything, our heart, soul, and strength, because he is worthy of all worship. Paul addresses this idea again in Romans, in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Worship of God is total and complete. No other person or thing in our lives should receive any of the adoration, honor, and obedience that only God deserves. He has reserved that right for himself, as indicated in Isaiah 42.8, when he says, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Through Christ, we have been set free from slavery to sin. We are now free to obey him exclusively and ascribe to him the worship he deserves by following his commands. We know this, yet as John Calvin says, and as Pastor Joshua referenced in his sermon on Christmas, our hearts are idol factories. What idols are you tempted to worship instead of God? Do you worship money? Is your life oriented in such a way that your earnings or your spending on possessions or activities or your contributions to your savings account provide more peace and hope than your security in Christ? Or do you worship people? Are your actions governed by God's commands or by the expectations of others? Do you seek first to be an obedient follower of Christ? Or is it more important to you to be a popular friend, a successful business person, a respected parent, or a cherished spouse? Another way to word it, what rivals God for the throne of our hearts? Brothers and sisters, it is the constant work of the believer to slay these idols in our hearts and ensure that God retains his proper place in our lives. This is fundamental to the words that follow this text as the Ten Commandments and the law continue in Exodus. All of God's law hinges on this command to have no other gods. We cannot follow the rest of the commandments without embracing this one. The God who established this covenant with his people Israel in Exodus is the same God who has established a new covenant with us by sending his son to die for sin knowing that none of us could keep his holy law, that we, his church, could be made his people, and all the world would know of his glorious work. May we as a church live in light of this fact and have no other gods besides him. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for delivering us from sin through the sacrifice of your son, we pray that you would grant us grace through your spirit to follow your commands, slay the idols in our lives, and have no other gods besides you. In Jesus' name, amen.